Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Sunday, March the 5th, 2023. Sundays are days traditionally uh, where we are supposed to rest. But of course, smart machines, uh, artificial intelligence never rests. And the news about it never rests either. The newspapers, as always, is full of, are full of stories about the AI revolution. It's a really interesting piece in the Financial Times about Mark Andreessen's um, new investment in a, in a chatbot uh, company called uh, Character AI. Uh, meanwhile, Reid Hoffman, another of Silicon Valley's smartest, most prescient investors. He was the original investor in Facebook. He founded LinkedIn, um, has a new startup company uh, uh, called Inflection, uh, building a personal assistant for the web. What will become, of course, of personal assistants is another story, human personal assistants. Vinod Kosler, another of Silicon Valley's most successful figures uh, quoted uh, uh, in the Financial Times today suggesting that by 2043, that's in 20 years, um, 80% of economically valuable functions will be done by AI, which is an astonishing uh, prediction, but one that doesn't seem utterly ludicrous. Um, according to another of the FT correspondents, Leo Lewis, the politics of deglobalization favors the robots. As labor supply problems persist, Lewis argues, automation sales are hotting up. And of course, there are winners and losers in this market. Uh, Amazon, oddly enough, seems to be a big loser. Uh, there's a piece in the, the FT uh, today about Amazon's big dreams for Alexa which is their AI smart bodies falling short. All this, of course, speaks of what we might think of as a battle royale for control of the commanding heights of this new AI economy. And speaking of AI battle royales, there's a new book coming out next month by my guest, Ashley Reconati, French-based writer on AI. Uh, AI battle royale, how to protect your job from disruption in the fourth industrial revolution. Ashley is joining us from Paris. Ashley, welcome. Um, the fourth industrial revolution, perhaps you might touch on the first three uh, as an introduction and then explain why AI is the fourth industrial revolution. Oh, hi, Andrew. Sure. Uh, the, the first industrial revolution um, which we had was with, as, as we know, with steam and coal, and it really propelled with the engine and uh, other uh, advancements. It propelled the uh, modern society that we of the 19th century with its uh, mills and furnaces and factories, and it had a huge uh, societal impact at the time um, with the Buddhists and other, you know, uh, peoples uh, who saw their jobs being threatened. Uh, not necessarily in terms of quantity, but in terms of quality. And uh, that was something that was very hard for them to digest. So it, it created a lot of upheaval. Uh, there were winners and losers. It uh, devalued 
the labor of uh, skilled people like the Ludits, who were uh, basically uh, working on, on uh, making clothes. Meanwhile, it enhanced uh, youths coming from the farms and arriving in the factories because they didn't need to have an extensive knowledge about how to make a shoe. Uh, they needed only to know a few little operations and do them a thousand times per day. And uh, so, yeah, so this was the first industrial revolution that perhaps was most dramatically captured by Marx in, in his uh, 1848 Communist Manifesto. What about the second and third industrial revolutions? They had very, so they have very different impacts. Uh, the second revolution had a more of a democratization impact. So we're talking about electricity and oil, which fueled, you know, uh, cars, uh, planes and, and much more. And it sort of helped to uh, flatten the inequalities that existed throughout the 19th century with uh, the emergence of a middle class, which is one of the great achievements of the 20th century. And uh, a fair share of it is thanks to the uh, new technology of the second industrial revolution. Now the third industrial revolution, the computerization, the effects of this revolution are a bit more um, mitigated on the social level uh, because since the 1970s, roughly, we've had, and it's sort of in parallel with the um, computerization, uh, we've had, well, things that are enabled thanks to computerization, such as um, uh, the global economy, uh, globalization, and, you know, they advance hand to hand, really. And uh, then ultimately, it's feeding inequalities again. And... uh, that you mentioned this in, in some of your other work, the uh, the hollowing of the middle class, as we call it, is a uh, phenomenon that has been taken root in the past 50 years throughout this third industrial revolution. And it could be accelerated now with the fourth industrial revolution. Okay, so we got the first three. We got the traditional industrial revolution of the middle of the 19th century, what you call a more democratizing impact of uh, electricity, ubiquitous electricity in the late 19th, early 20th century, and then the computer slash internet revolutions since 1970, which have seemed to have gone hand in hand with neoliberalism, and that's perhaps no coincidence. So now we're on the verge of what you call the fourth industrial revolution, which is the AI battle royale. Some people might think, well, isn't the AI battle royale, isn't that the final battle? of the third industrial revolution what makes ai different from the computer internet industrial revolution as we all are receiving a lot of credible evidence in the past months uh, ai can progress to certain levels which make it capable of replacing uh human labor and the cerebral activities um the past industrial revolutions uh, basically contributed to automating uh, manual labor. So, uh, you know, muscle work, basically, and uh, with, with machines and uh, more, you know, efficient or- ways of organizing work. Uh, allied with machines, you would use like, you know, the Taylorism and things like this. Uh, now, what the new uh, Industrial Revolution is doing is creating a second uh age machine where now the machines are actually capable of replacing us in our uh, cerebral tasks. So doing cognitive work, basically. And this is the big difference, because up to now, this is the pocket of resistance where everyone was going to in order to have, you know, a a better job, you would do more cognitive work. And now this cognitive work is being uh, encroached on by more and more sophisticated AI. 
Ashley, uh, not everyone necessarily would agree with this. Uh, we had a former publisher of a large New York publishing house, Doubleday, on the show recently, Steve Rubin, um, who's written his own memoir. And I asked him about the impact of AI on, uh, on the writing industry. This is what he said. This is how he responded. Doesn't make you miserable, nothing will. What about the latest um, mania in Silicon Valley for AI chatbots, chat GPT? I know you're not a big tech guy, but I'm sure you've heard of it. Yeah, uh, technology a, that like, allows- Give me a fucking break. No way, no way, no way. I just, I just turned the page. I just don't deal. Well, I just had a doctor who suggests that it's going to transform the medical industry. Why shouldn't it transform publishing? I don't think I mean, most will. books, as you know, aren't very good. Most writers aren't particularly good. Why can't the machines do their work for them? Um, because I don't believe that they can do that kind of creativity. Never. I, I don't. I don't know enough about it. Um, I. I would say that surely, not. Look, take 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 the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime. One of the books I'm most proud of by having published. It's such an original story, and you're in the mind of a uh, kid on with Asperger's. There's no way they could do that kind of creativity. They can check a lot of the boxes for a, a murder, a thriller, or some kind of other book, a romance, but I don't think they can do. Real, so they real. may not be able to do bestsellers, but for the that that's a brilliant book, incredibly original. But for the other 99 books out of 100 that aren't original, AI can do the, the work for them. Well, first of all, I beg to differ with you that the number is probably 85 out of 100 that aren't original. Uh, maybe you're right, I don't know, but they definitely can't do the 15 percent the, the other kind, and in the same way, in the same way that everybody predicting you know the death of books it's not going to happen so i haven't convinced you steve to be miserable well i'm, I'm an optimist remember and an enthusiast what's interesting uh ashley about steve rubin's um comments on this is that like Vinod Kostler, he talks about the 80 to 85% of stuff that's simply going to go away. So even if he believes still that the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime, a very original novel, uh, will never be able to be created by AI, he, seems, he still seems to imply that most, in, quote unquote, intelligent work, most intelligent writing uh, could theoretically be done by machines What's your take on the impact of AI on writing, given the this this new wave of AI um, innovation seems to focus on chat GPT and the ability of AI to replicate text? This seems to be the writers are on the front lines of, of what you call this fourth industrial revolution. Yeah, certainly there will be change to um, the act of writing whether it's in a profession or whether it's at schools or, or elsewhere. It's just, uh, this is a great uh, tool that can aid in writing. I don't think it's not reached the level yet where it could substitute for it. Um, if you ask uh, Chad GPT, uh, my company, uh, we need a, to hire like a financial manager or something. If I just ask it to uh, spit me out a description of a financial manager, it will. And maybe 70% of it will be okay, but I still have to go through it. So it, it helps me to not have to start with a blank page. 
And that's the case for many people today uh, who use ChatGPT. Um, that being said, it's not at the level where it can substitute yet. It will reach that level uh, eventually. You know, there's there's an improvement going on in AI. ChatGPT is really the better version. It wasn't even really supposed to be released to the public. Right, uh, and uh, and we know that there's a, another quoting Forbes, an AI battle royale between Google Bard and ChatGPT. So there's going to be new and newer and newer technologies from more and more innovative companies like Google challenging chat GPT. So when it comes to writers, the subtitle of your book, um, Ashley, is how to protect your job from disruption in the fourth industrial revolution. What advice would you give writers who, some of whom are feeling seriously under pressure for, for, for good reason? First of all, um, and I mean no disrespect, uh, writers are rather, they're not the most relevant uh, population that I address uh, to because uh, if we look at the American population of 140 million, uh, roughly, uh, or 150 million active workforce, how many writers are there? How many millions of writers? I don't think well, that they may not be full-time formal writers, but they write copy for advertising companies. They write memos within companies. So there are a lot of jobs which require writers. They may not be novelists or non-fiction writers, but nonetheless, a lot of their labor focuses on writing itself. Yeah, well, the writing job, again, it can be enhanced by the new technologies. Eventually, though, um, certain forms of it can get evinced. Why? Because as you pointed to in the previous interview there, uh, a lot of this uh, does not really involve creativity. And unfortunately, writing is one of the jobs where you would expect to see more creativity, which means if you look at other jobs, which constitute a lot larger portion of the U.S. workforce, uh, there is even less creativity. And those are the jobs that I'm more concerned about. Uh, when you have a hollowing out or, or the middle class of the workforce, which is like, you know, going down and the extremities which are building up. Uh, this isn't just because you have the same number of people working in the same jobs and just because the job of an accountant, they're starting to earn less while the other guy's starting to work more. No, it's because there's less jobs in the middle. Jobs, typically office administrative jobs, uh, we're talking about roughly 25 million jobs in the United States. These jobs are going down and they've been decreasing in, in number of jobs uh, for the past 20 years. Um, okay, well, let's deal with personal assistance. Um... As I said in the introduction, Reid Hoffman uh, has a, a new startup, Inflection, building a personal assistant for the web. What advice would you give personal assistants? There are many millions of people working as personal assistants to executives and lawyers and doctors and engineers. What should they do to protect their job? Uh, all right. First of all, let me just precise the contours of the meaning of the AI battle royale. The idea is that because the jobs in the middle are becoming scarcer, there's only two ways to go. Either you go towards um, a low paid job or you can pull your way up to a higher paid job. And so in many jobs today where you have per perhaps in, a, in an office, you have like a 10 accountants. Uh, maybe tomorrow, thanks to AI improvements, there will only be a need for uh, half of this number of accountants. So the other half are going to either, you know, are, are going to go and need to look for another job, which might not be as well paid. Meanwhile, the five accounts who remain, they were chosen because they are able to use the new tools efficiently and they can gain a lot more in, 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 in productivity this way. And my advice to anyone basically is going to be in parts to go for this cognitive side. 
look within your job, which of your tasks are recurrent, those are the ones that AI are going to be most likely targeting, the type of tasks that you can write down in a very minutiae, just like you could code it in a program. This is what is going is at stake, basically. So that's part of the way to look into this. Uh, the title AI Battle Royale, the idea is that we're not, it's not a fight between humans and the machine. It's a fight between humans to reach the scarce, good paying jobs that will remain uh, in a society where we're going to have basically haves and have nots. So it's this worse. is rather depressing. And in some ways, it seems to compound the inequalities and the hollowing out of the middle that is a feature of the computer revolution, a winner-take-all economy in um, Silicon Valley. What should people do? Perhaps they should, uh, according to Gary Marcus, one of the world's leading AI experts, he's been on the show a couple of times, um, maybe they should focus on getting a better liberal arts education. And yet, at the same time as we have this AI revolution, we have, at least according to the New Yorker, the end of the English major uh, at universities. Is education one of the, the fixes? I mean, it, there are a lot of people in college now thinking about careers. What should they be studying, Ashley? Does, does education even matter in terms of your AI battle royale? Education matters. Uh, there's two aspects that you're alluding to there. One is uh, educational reform, which is something that is done by uh, the state. And then what can be done as a very young person, uh, you know, going to college and, you know, having to choose uh, what to study. Uh, so th those are two very different questions. Obviously, there, there need, we need educational reform. And um, just as all, all the other aspects that you mentioned in, in your last book um, need to be addressed. And that was, I believe, five, one of the five uh, big uh, measures to improve society was related to education. Um, what people need to do most importantly is to not it doesn't really matter what they study it you know this, this it, there's too many things out there to do you know you can't really just tell people to study this and you know you have to take into account your passions and, and your abilities and other things too but the most important thing is that whatever it is you study don't stop when you finish the studies don't stop learning keep on continuously learning things uh, relative to your field to deepen that field and relative to adjacent fields you have to develop this kind of transversality in order to evolve in, in, in the new world, in order to better connect the dots between what's going on in your company or in your ecosystem and not just be limited to one little thing or else you're, you're doing no better than narrow AI, basically. Should we be focusing on stuff that supposedly AI can't do? Uh, we've done a number of shows on the relationship between AI and empathy, one with an Australian AI expert Toby Walsh um, suggesting that if superpower, if if our superpower, human superpower, is empathy, why are we teaching humans to be empathetic? We've also had Sherry Turkle on the show a lot of times, uh, one of the world's leading authorities on uh, AI, uh, smart machines, and empathy. Should we be trying to figure out what computers can't do, or will they eventually figure out how to be empathetic? No, no, for, for sure. There's uh, the way that you have to see the computerization is you could see it as uh, eventually something which could bring to uh, massive unemployment. At least that's what some people say. Now, we're very far from that now because we're in this reverse situation of full unemployment. But again, there's a matter of the quantity of jobs and there's a matter of the quality of jobs. 
if we're in full unemployment, but you have half the people that are making like really living in misery and squalor and the other half who are doing like just too well, then, you know, you need to find a balance. So that being said, if we do reach a, a level of um, massive unemployment, this will be gradual. And so you have to see how this goes progressively in time. And based on, you know, which level of time you are, then you can see as what, what is important to, uh, to learn and to, to keep, to capture that the AI cannot do yet. So there are two axes to develop. One is being able to be good at everything that the AI is not good at. So, you know, empathy is, is obviously one of the, the ways to look at. So this requires that you're in a job where it matters. So typically a job, a front office job, something where you're talking to the customer, something where you're often in meetings with people, this, you need to have this kind of social interaction. And then you need to be good at social skills, of course. But many jobs, if you're you know, washing dishes at a restaurant or something, there isn't that much uh, social interaction going on. So that is one of the one of the elements. There's other elements. And then there's a whole other uh, type of skills that you need to acquire is those to be able to work together with the tools, to be able to master these tools. That's how you get a competitive advantage over your peers and how you can, you know, succeed in the battle royale. Should we be thinking of it in terms of the the narrative of smart chess players that originally when machines could play chess and beat grandmasters, everyone was fearful that smart chess players were going to ruin the game. And then the smartest chess players began to work with the AI to turn themselves into better chess players. Is that the, the model we should be thinking of in a broader sense of your AI battle royale? It's one of the cards to play with for sure. Uh, you can't only depend on that. Uh, I believe it's Martin Ford who took this example that you cited and just said that that's really yeah, nice. Martin of the machines. Martin's been on the show a few years ago. It was a prize-winning book. Yes. And so he said that if you just look at this, perhaps it's just a snapshot of today, but the machines are not going to stay at this level of intelligence. We will, but the machines, they just keep on improving. So later on, they, we could be completely substituted for in terms of labor, just as the horses originally were uh, augmented through, you know, clothes and, and things like this. And then eventually they got replaced by tractors and automobiles and their number plunged from something like 50 million at the beginning of the 20th century to 2 million by 1950. What about the apocalyptic quality of all this? We've done lots of shows on this one with Jacob Ward, um, believing that AI is a true threat to humanity. Another with Michael Bess, a historian that included AI in the four existential threats to humanity in the 21st century. How dark a threat could all this be, Ashley? Uh, if you're talking about a Terminator scenario, for me, it's not uh, something, uh, it's not an immediate threat that we need to, it's not the most pressing concern we have right now. Uh, the impact What's of- more pressing? I mean, uh, Hess talked about pandemic, climate and nukes as the other three, are, are they all bigger threats? The climate is uh, the biggest threat in my view, uh, but this is just, this is just personal. Um, these are all threats, but you have to know that the AI, uh, the, the AI apocalyptic scenario is not a threat that's really taken seriously by, uh, by the U S government. For instance, they don't have, like they have a list of threats every year that they uh, pump out. Uh, I forget the name of the report, but, AI, the, the, the probability of, an, of a singularity or a super intelligence is, not, is nowhere in there. Uh, so it's not the most pressing issue we have. The threat of AI... the role of government in all this? Um, I talked about the politics of deglobalization favoring robots, um, but governments have 
are bound to weigh in on this in terms of regulation. You're talking to me from France, one of the more regulatory states when it comes to the march of technology. Do governments have a role in protecting people's jobs in this fourth industrial revolution, Ashley, do you think? Whether they do or not, uh, some governments do this. And uh, some governments also try to, um, uh, you know, develop and boost uh, the technologies. So workers, because that's the, what, the people that I address to in the book, their workers need to take this in account uh, because it's an important factor. You know, you could say, okay, uh, truck drivers could be, uh, the job could be automated maybe, but it won't be right away because you know, that the legislation is going to drag their feet on with the whole issues on insurance and other aspects. So you need to see this as, okay, now I have a buffer, maybe five years, 10 years before this all catches up and make the best of this time to switch to, uh, you know, to learn something, to switch to a, a job, which will more likely survive on the long run. That's the point, really. You have to keep your feet out of the, I mean, you have to keep out of the water as long as possible, because if ever there is massive unemployment that happens, by then we must have found some solutions. The problem is not when we're there, the problem is the route to get there. If it takes 50 years or something, we need something in the meanwhile to you know hold on to. So, Well, there's I like no, uh, I mean, it sounds like the march of technology is one thing we can say is that it's, that's inevitable. So it's not as if we're gonna come up with new technology that will create jobs. It, although some people argue that, that in the middle of the 19th century, it was assumed that everyone would lose their work and then everyone turned up uh, in factories. What kinds of new jobs might AI create? Jobs that we can't quite imagine now. Some people talk about, you know, masseurs and therapists, uh, but what about jobs that somehow reflect this new industrial revolution? There's jobs being created in the data industry. Uh, they're not all um, very nice jobs. Uh, the job of data labeler or content moderator is not something that, you know, you consider like a, a kind of job that you want to have, really. Um, the job markets, yeah, it, 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 there's much that's going on there. And uh, there's different kinds of disruption that happen. When you refer to the disruption from a century ago, we're talking about sectorial disruption, uh, something like everything that goes with the horse business, including horse vets that uh, lose their jobs. Uh, and then they need to, you know, learn how to, you know, either drive a car or become a mechanic or something. That is sectorial disruption. The type of disruption we're experiencing here with AI is a disruption on jobs. So even a sector that's doing very well, the, the green economy, the silver markets, uh, or a company that's, you know, growing in sales, they can still decide like, okay, we're going to fire half of our accountants or half of our marketing department because now we can become more efficient with just, you know, the other half, you know. So the stock market is doing well, but stockbrokers have gone. And in their, in their stead, we have like just a handful of plums. Uh, AI, um, the, the first industrial revolution actually created an entirely new kind of politics, revolutionized politics, political parties, identity. Um, but it took 50 or even 100 years would you expect the same sort of political revolution in terms of the identity of parties in the United States? For example, we have a very archaic two-party system. No one's entirely clear what these parties represent. There's a lot of dissatisfaction, both with the parties and the people in them. 
Is it conceivable we're on the brink of a new kind of politics, a political revolution? The economics uh, is there in, tr in terms of, again, of the wealth uh, inequalities. Um, everything is there for it to happen, for sure. And, and, and again, because we're going, it's a trend. Huh? It's not just the level we're at today. The trend is still going to be or continuing so far to be one of greater inequality. So that is indeed the ingredient for uh, social uh, unrest. And I can tell you because I'm actually in normal times, I'm based in Shanghai, China. And I've been there during the whole COVID uh, period. And I can tell you a lot of the unrest that happened uh, in China and before this in Hong Kong, the, the roots, the foundations are economical problems, problems of inequality, basically. Well, I think one thing is for sure, uh, AI might take away our jobs in the end, but there is a, a boom in books about AI. Finally, Ashley, uh, with all due respect, what is original about your book? Many books have been written about AI, about their threat to work. What are you saying in AI Battle Royale that hasn't been said before? Why should someone read this book? How much time do I have to answer this question? As much as you want. Okay. Well, I like to read a lot. And I used to read quite a lot about history, among other topics. And then at some stage, maybe six, eight years ago, probably around the birth of my daughter, I started finding myself reading more about the future. So I read, uh, you know, part voraciously about the, you know, people like Alec Ross, who I, who I, may, I believe, you know, and, uh, and, and many others. And throughout these books, although there's many different points of view and everything, I do find one common denominator is that everyone mentions this uh, threat to the uh, workers and to the job market. And the solutions that people propose often turn around, you know, things that can be enacted by politicians like universal basic income or things like this or tax reforms, uh, educational reform, et cetera. And, and I think, well, that, that, that's great, but what can just a normal worker do about this? And uh, again, I told you that a lot of the people in office and mean jobs are threatened. There's other categories of workers that are threatened too, whether it's in production, whether it's uh, white collars, et cetera. And so I, was not able actually to find a book that really answered this question in a very right way. Some books mention about it and try to explore the idea a little bit. You have Lee Kai-Fu, for instance, in AI Superpowers, who actually does a pretty long digression on the topic. But I didn't find any book directly addressing the workers and trying to frame, like, what should their action plan be? And, uh, you know, with a SWOT and with an introspection on your job and, and seeing, like, okay, what qualities can make for resisting the, uh, the bad impacts of the... Um, AI and other technologies, because we also have augmented uh, reality and other technologies, are, which are also playing a role. But, you know, the, the whole idea of the book, basically, is the joke that goes around in the AI community of two campers being surprised by a bear in the woods in the middle of the night. And one of the campers starts slowly lacing his shoes. And the other one tells him, like, what are you putting your shoes on for? You can't possibly go run faster than a bear. And the first camper tells him, I don't have to run faster than the bear. I only need to run faster than you. And th so this is the whole point of AI Battle Royale. The bear, it, and it turns out, is a robot, or less prosaically, an algorithm. And because an algorithm is very easy to scale at zero marginal cost, that puts basically all of the workers in the shoes of those two campers. So I don't believe everyone's going to make it out. There's going to be like some, uh, you know, some broken eggs to make the omelet. But my advice is I, I can't, it, it's not the point of trying to help everyone because that's like more for governments to do. I'm just trying to tell the worker what they can do in the workplace to, you know, play the, how they can play their cards 
to get out of this best. And I haven't personally, there's a lot of things being written, right? But I haven't, re I haven't seen everything. But personally, I haven't seen um, anything that really addresses this topic in a serious manner.